or about just the Orthodox Church in general, anytime this happens, they're always like, we like this, except we don't like how you do all of this stuff for St. Mary. And that's, that's at least on one level. <clears throat> and then, I had one time, a Coptic Orthodox guy, a guy who had been raised in the Coptic Orthodox Church all of his life and was very religious. But he was very upset about uh, midnight praises. Midnight praises. When we praise at night, uh, we have what's called a theotokeia. And in one of the theotokeias, the verse says, basically asking Jesus Christ to help us so that we can praise St. Mary. And, and he's like, what is this? <clears throat> why do I need to praise St. Mary? And why do I need to ask Jesus himself to help me praise St. Mary? It's all pointless. What's the point of it all? So even though somebody who had been born and raised in the church did not understand the place of St. Mary in our theology and in our church. And for us, I think many of us might be confused about her status, or at least about how to approach her. Of course, the simplest and the easiest way to understand exactly what to do and how to understand the, the Theotokos is through the hymns. But who of us is here at church morning and evening to understand and to hear the hymns that are said throughout the week? We only hear basically a small portion that's in the liturgy. We have a small prayer in the Agbeya. Um, but oftentimes when someone comes up to us and says, I want to pray to Jesus directly. Why do I need St. Mary? What is the... What is the point of St. Mary in all of this? We find ourselves a bit confused. We might have a little bit of an answer, but ultimately we find ourselves in a difficult position not being able to put two words together. So let me give you a little bit of the history of what is going on. What is going on from the very beginning? In the first century, we're going to go first, second, third, fourth, and 5th century, just so that we know where we're at today, and it's going to make sense um, from at, at least a little bit more. So it begins in the 1st century that, of course, Jesus Christ comes, is born, is conceived. So we have here the icon of the conception. This is where Christ is conceived. It's called the Annunciation. Archangel Gabriel says to St. Mary, um, you know, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a child, and she says, Okay, yes, let it be to me according to your will. Why is this the conception? Nine months later we celebrate the birth. Nine months. So you have January seventh, nine months before that is April seventh, right? In the the, the the churches that celebrate Christmas on December twenty-fifth, the Annunciation is on March twenty-fifth. So this is the Annunciation and the conception of Christ. We we have this in the first century. This is also part of this, um, um, the, the, the Lord's coming, um, and these icons, just an aside, one meditation is that these are the two comings, first coming, and this is the second coming, um, and we live in the middle of these two comings here. So Christ comes in the first century, and we have in the end of the first century, the gospel writers begin to write, as well as St. Paul and others begin to write about the mother of God. What do they write about? 
Well, Mark writes his gospel, doesn't do anything, just a couple of verses. Then you have Luke, who writes, and Matthew, who write about the, the, um, the angels and the, the, the birth of Christ. All of that became very important. So you have those writings. And then you have St. Paul. All he does is he references St. Mary, I think, in Galatians. And he says that Jesus was born of a woman. And that was it. And that was the first century. And by the end of the first century, there was nothing controversial about the mother of God. There was no controversy about her place, about her role. We have her at the foot of the cross. We have her uh, in the upper room on Pentecost receiving the Holy Spirit. But we don't have her, and this is important, especially when we go down the road of uh, women and the priesthood. We don't have Christ giving her any authority in that area, even though everyone has said from the very beginning that if anybody was worthy of the priesthood, it would have been St. Mary. If anyone, any human being is worthy of it, it would have been St. Mary, nobody else. And so um, Christ um, comes of, uh, from her, and she is the mother of God. And then we have statements where Christ says, um, you know, they'll come to him and they'll say, where's your mother? Your mother and your brothers are outside. And he'll say, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of God, these are my mother and my brothers. And then you see how he's actually praising St. Mary because she did the will of God. And that's why she is his mother, not because she physically gave birth to him. We go on into the second century and a few of the fathers begin to meditate on how St. Mary is the exact opposite of Eve. And that becomes their meditation. They meditate on her in some of the writings. You have Justin Martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, um, and, and maybe a few others who write about her. And they just, they say, they kind of notice things. They notice things. Well, St. Saint, Saint Mary was so obedient. She's, she, was, she was obedient, and yet Eve, before Eve was disobedient. So they start seeing how St. Mary undoes what's, what, what Eve had done in the very beginning. And that salvation is now coming to us through this woman because in the beginning, death and sin came through the woman in the very beginning. But how Christ is undoing that with the mother of God. In the third century, um, there might have been a few more writers, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, but why I'm kind of passing over these quickly is because there was no controversy. There was no, no one had a problem with St. Mary. And, um, and then we find by the 4th century that there, there uh, or, or I should say the end of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th century, there starts to be a problem coming out of Antioch. There is a, um, a patriarch of Antioch, a pope, you can say, a bishop of Antioch, who decides, uh, I don't think it's right that we call her Theotokos, or Mother of God, uh, we should call her Christotokos. And the reason why he said that was, God has no origin, God has no beginning. So how can he have a mother? So it's foolish for us to say that he has a mother, uh, but, but the one who gave birth to him was Mary, and so we should call her the Mother of Christ, as opposed to Mother of God. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria did not like this, and he's, he's our patriarch. And he, in the beginning of the 5th century, starts to write letters to this patriarch trying to correct him. 
and uh, the patriarch is unrelenting, and so there's a council, the Council of Ephesus. And this is in the year 431. And in this council, uh, Cyril, um, as controversial as that council was, um, the result of it is that Cyril and uh, the church argue against this, this idea of you can't call St. Mary the mother of God, by saying when, when he was conceived in her womb, was he God? Was he God at the very conception, or was he just a bunch of cells? Was he just a human being? And we say, no, he was God from the very conception, and so therefore, she is the mother of God, because she gives birth to God. Who, because it's not about St. Mary, it's about who is Jesus Christ. He's God. We cannot deny that he's God. And if you say that he's not, if you say that he's not God, then you are denying Jesus Christ, and it's a heresy. It's not about St. Mary, right? So that's what we have to kind of start to see, that people were, were talking about St. Mary, but it's not really about her, it's about Jesus Christ. And when we understand that she is the mother of God, and that's why we use that word Theotokos, we don't like to just translate it, we want to say Theotokos all the time. When we understand that she is the Theotokos, the mother of God, then we start to, we, the church in the 4th century, 5th century, begins to meditate more on St. Mary, begins to think about her more, begins to understand that there's a lot of references in the Old Testament to the Mother of God. And that's why we have so much is spoken about in the Old Testament, or sorry, in our hymns, um, about the temple and the tabernacle and how the tabernacle represented St. Mary. We call St. Mary the second heaven. We call St. Mary um, the, the mercy seat. If, if you know these images, and if you know what happens at the mercy seat in the Old Testament, these are extremely powerful images about who St. Mary is and what we're saying, what the church is saying. We begin to meditate on St. Mary a lot more in the 5th century. Again, there's no problems, because nobody has left Jesus Christ. We are using Jesus Christ as, as, or we're using St. Mary as a means for us to understand the deeper mystery of God. Because St. Mary was a teenager. She was a teenager who was able to say yes to God. Why is that so incredible? Because now we're seeing that as humans, right? What do we expect from teenagers? <laughs> what do we expect from teenagers? We don't expect anything great, right? We just want them to pass with their, their teenage years without getting into trouble, without getting into any problems, without you know, any um, disasters or catastrophes, right? At least that's my take of the teenage years. I tell you, your, your parents bring your kids to church so that we can all, as a group, help one another to safely get the, the kids out of the teenage years and into, uh, hopefully, adulthood. St. Mary was a teenager who was able to say yes to God. And because she was able to say yes to God, we were able to say yes to God. And through her, we say, we say I, I don't want to say crazy statements, but we say stuff like, you saved Adam. right? So Adam sinned, Eve sinned, they fell into uh, damnation and condemnation. But because St. Mary was able to say yes to God, she saved them because she allowed God to enter into the world. So many hymns develop 
So many meditations developed from the 5th century, 6th century, 7th century. Now in the Catholic Church, they keep going. Um, they, um, they, have, they develop this idea of St. Mary as uh, being immaculately conceived, the immaculate conception. And what that means, because there's two ways of understanding that, what they mean by it is that she was not human in the sense that we're human. There's two, kind of two forms of humanity, right? This is important. There is humanity before the fall, and there's humanity after the fall. There is Adam and Eve before they fell, and they had the perfect humanity. And then after the fall, we say it's fallen human nature, and that every one of us inherited this. When we're baptized, we are baptized, and we have that new birth, and we're restored back to before the fall. They want to say Mary was without sin, Mary did not have that original sin of Adam from the very beginning. She did not have that fallen nature. She was perfect. Now we say she was perfect, and we say she did it. We well, one of the meditations, and this is something that we can get to later on, is that she chose not to sin all of her life, but she still carried the fallen human nature. So when we say she was immaculately conceived, or when we think about it, we think about it in the sense that the union of her mother and the union of her father was holy, but that she herself inherited our sinful nature. And she needed a savior, as she says um, about Jesus Christ, that he is her savior. So while it's interesting about that doctrine, why the Catholic Church took that was not because the, the theologians of the Catholic Church decided that this was doctrine and, and taught the people. The people, loving St. Mary so much, kept pushing this, if you want to, so to speak, on the, on the Pope and on, on the Catholic Church. And so they accepted it as theology coming from the people. The, the Catholic Church has a different um, kind of mechanism for theology, different from the Orthodox Church, but I'm just differentiating that. Through the Middle Ages, that comes out of the Catholic Church, but through the Middle Ages in the Coptic Orthodox Church, we have um, some very um, kind of uh, uh, you know, extreme hymns about St. Mary. Most of the hymns that we have during uh, the Seba Awarba, or the Seven and Four, or the Midnight Praises during Kiak, most of those were written, um, I want to say, during those Middle Age times. The theology is kind of weak. The theology has kind of strayed a little bit from what was... Um, the original fathers of the church have said about St. Mary. And in now you have the Catholic Church with one, on one level and the Orthodox Church with some of this extreme language. And then you have the Protestants coming in and, and sort of rejecting it, beginning to reject things because all they're, cute, they're hearing is a few things here and there. They're not understanding the full theology of the church nor the full hymnology of the church, and they're not understanding exactly how we approach St. Mary. They think that we're worshiping her. They think that we've made her equal to Jesus Christ. And you would think that, because we say, you saved Adam. And the Protestant will say, what do you mean you saved Adam? Jesus Christ is the one who saved Adam. But they fail to see that we in the Orthodox Church believe our salvation has to be hand in hand with God. There is one side that comes from God, the other side comes from our humanity. 
God doesn't force himself. He didn't force himself on St. Mary. She had a choice. Judas Iscariot had a choice. Peter, St. Peter had a choice. He could repent or not repent. All of these great saints had choices that they made. And, and this word in the, in the English is called synergy or cooperation. Synergy, cooperation, working together. And every time I use this word, I have to bring my two hands together like this. I've noticed this over the years. This is my sign language for synergy and cooperation. But the two hand in hand working together, humanity saying yes to God and God coming down to humanity. And this is, we see this in the Old Testament as well. So then what happens now? You have in the, around the last four or 500 years, every 500 years, there's a problem. In the 500 years, there was the first, uh, the Council of Chalcedon that split off the Eastern Church from the West, uh, the, sorry, the, the Oriental from the Eastern. And then around the year 1000, you had the Catholic Church and the, Pro and the Orthodox Church splitting up. And then around the year 1500, 1600, you have the Protestants splitting off from the, from the Catholics. So every 500 years. What happens, the Protestants in the very beginning, by the time the Protestants break off from the Catholic Church, there is no problem with St. Mary. There's no problem with her virginity. There's not, no problem with calling her the mother of God. There's no problem with calling her a saint. None of that is a problem. And even the early reformers in the Protestant Church had no problem with St. Mary. It was only in the last 200, 300 years where all of a sudden people are like having knee-jerk reactions to this idea that we would ask the mother of God to intercede on our behalf. That we would ask St. Mary to pray for us. Because what happens when tradition, the tradition of the church, sort of breaks apart and there's no history, right? When people all of a sudden just take the Bible and say, we're only going to take the Bible, they lose the context of the Bible. They lose how we've been reading the Bible for all of these years. And that in addition to the Bible, we come together and we worship. And in the hymns that we, we sing, the hymns teach us about St. Mary. The hymns teach us about, and, and the, the, the most pure theology that you can find is in the midnight praises. The most pure, the, the, what are called the Epsalis and the Theotokeias. Basically, the things that you guys don't attend on Saturday night, uh, but uh, we are encouraging you all to attend. Uh, the, this is where it, it, it becomes part of you. And, and I'm sure you've heard it, like, like when we sing, and we say, like, there we say, the salvation of Adam, uh, the grace of Daniel, all of these things, these images. Um, and, and if you notice at the very beginning of this hymn, even though we say a hundred times, at the very beginning of this hymn, we say, you know, seven times of the day, I will praise your name, uh, O God of everyone. Um, and and I, I'm, I can't just say the words without singing it, but the idea is that we're praising Jesus Christ. We're worshiping Jesus Christ, and it says, and let us sing about his mother. And if we could sum up, if we could sum up our Christian life, our Christian life is that we follow Jesus Christ to the cross. We follow him with all of our hearts. We follow him even if it leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. We follow him and we go all the way to the cross. But what do you find at the cross? Who do you find at the cross? You find his mother. You find his mother and St. John in his gospel doesn't give it a name, but he says, and the beloved disciple. 
And so he says to the beloved disciple, Behold your mother. And he says to St. Mary, he says, Behold your son. And so we're not here preaching St. Mary. In the Orthodox Church, we preach Christ, Him crucified. But when we speak about St. Mary, there's, it's a hidden mystery. It's a deeper mystery. And so to kind of come back to what I said at the very beginning, how you know, there are Protestants who are interested in the Orthodox Church, and they'll say, we, ex- we love all of this, except what you have to say about St. Mary, or this idea of the saints and St. Mary. And what I tell them is, wait. Let's talk about everything else, about the theology and the doctrine and the system and the Bible and the worship and everything else, and, the, and then we'll talk about St. Mary. And what always happens is by the end, by the time I get to St. Mary, I'd say 95% of the time, 95 people out of 100 are, are, are okay and they understand it because they realize that this, at this point in time there's a whole world in which St. Mary comes to us. It's not just um, like an isolated uh, issue. And that for us, of course, when you experience Christ and then you begin to experience St. Mary, you see that her value is beyond a tool that we just use to get to God. Right? It's not just, I'm going to pray to St. Mary because I really want this one issue and I know God is going to listen to her and so I'm going to pray to St. Mary. But we find that she is in a relationship with us and we can be in a relationship with her. St. Mary loves Jesus Christ more than anyone ever or could, right? All of you mothers can say this about your children, right? You love your child more than anything in the whole world. St. Mary loved Jesus Christ more than anything. She said, we have at the cross, you know, where we say in our tradition, she said, my son and my God. My son and my God. So if we're going to approach St. Mary, she's not going to say, oh, come to me, forget about Jesus Christ. She directs us to her son. She is the one that's always pictured with her son. If you see an icon of St. Mary without Jesus Christ, forgive me, the icon that, or the pictures that we have of St. Mary um, from Zaytun, or uh, I guess you can call it our, our uh, I, I believe, I, it's nothing wrong with like, our, like the, those, those pictures. They're, they're, they're good and they remind us of those apparitions and they're nice. However, St. Mary is always pointing us to Jesus Christ, never to her, to Him. And there's actually three icons. I'll give you, there's a fourth, but there's three icons. There's her with Him center in her womb. And this is her with Christ incarnate. There's her caressing or having Him uh, very close, cheek to cheek. Um, And these have names. They're they're ones, uh, I think... Uh, uh, Our Lady of, of, of Tender Mercy or uh, other, other names like this. And then there's one of her extending uh, him, almost kind of presenting him to the world. And then the fourth, the one where we find St. Mary alone is always by the cross. Where she's not really alone, she's just um, at, at the cross of her son. This is, this is um, you know, this is him seated. He's there. He's, he's inside. He's, this is the conception. <laughs> so he's there. 
Uh, she receives the word of God, and this is, you know, the, it has the dove here. The dove is not supposed to be here. The dove is only in the icon of the, um, of the, of the baptism. But it's supposed to, under, you know, the idea is that the words are, are taking, uh, are, are, are taking, um, making, the, that, she's, that it's of the Holy Spirit and the, um, that, that the Christ is being conceived in her. And so when we, when we come and we contemplate and we approach St. Mary, she brings us to her son. And so she becomes an extremely valuable tool for us. She is like any mother who comforts uh, her child. She is there to comfort us. She is there to protect us. She is there to teach us. She is there to feed us. She is there to nourish us. She is there to help us deepen our relationship with Christ. So we have no problem with saying to her, you know, hail to you and glory to you. Uh, there's one thing I forgot to mention. Two more minutes of your time. What we celebrate on, on August 22nd or 21st is her assumption into heaven. This is where I can, we can say, you don't have to believe that her body was taken up completely into heaven. It's not, you know, essential for the gospel. But if you understand what she is and who she is, it will make sense that her body was no longer kept on earth but taken up into heaven. There is some controversy about this which I don't want to get into. Um, but the idea behind this feast, do you know when we celebrate her departure? 29th of January, like we said, she departs in January, but we celebrate her body being taken up in, um, in uh, August. And this is why it's, it's um, but it's a universal feast. The Catholics on, uh, and the other Orthodox celebrate on August 15th, and then on, uh, and we celebrated just uh, a week on August 22nd. So it's a universal feast. However, um, it's, this is where we start to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what exactly is happening. There is a, a, um, a ribbon that Thomas takes from her. And this, this one, this ribbon is, I think, in three different monasteries. There's one of them in Soheg. Uh, the rib, the, the, I, I don't know, I, I think it's called Zanad in Arabic, but I don't know how to translate that exactly. But it's something that she gave to, uh, to Thomas which he was able to present to the disciples and to it boosted up his faith as well. Um, so for us, you know, what I want to kind of uh, alleviate and to clear up for us is that the mother of God, anything related to the mother of God was never a problem only until a few hundred years ago. But if we return and understand her and her usefulness, I, I use that word very lightly, her usefulness, her her. Her, her value to us is that she brings us closer to her son. And that's what the fathers discovered after the, fifth, after the fourth council, third council, sorry, in the fifth century. After that third council, the fathers in the church saw so much in the meditation on St. Mary, and they put her above the cherubim and above the seraphim. Right? The, the ranks of angels were always cherubim, seraphim, and then thrones, dominions, whatever, whatever, angels, archangels. But then they say, no, but St. Mary is more honorable than the cherubim and beyond compare more glorious than the seraphim. And uh, it's not in our tradition, but even in the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
they will pray a prayer where they'll say, O most holy Theotokos, save us. And then, of course, people don't like that. How can we say, St. Mary, save us? How can we uh, talk about salvation outside of Jesus Christ? And that's when they have to say, no, no, you have to understand when we say save us, it's not about you know, dying on the cross and granting us salvation from our sins. It's literally save us. I'm drowning. Throw me a life a preserver. Help me in this problem. Like you would say to anybody when you're going through a difficult time, I need you to save me from this problem. Save me from this issue. Save me, right? And we can pray to her and, and Jesus Christ has given her to us so that we can do this. Right? He said at the cross, Behold your mother. Okay, she's my mother. I'm going to treat her like my mother. And I'm going to revert to being five years old. I need everything. I need this. I need that. And, and, and what does a mother do? Of course, the mother does everything for her child to make sure that the child has everything. Uh, and I believe in our relationship with St. Mary, we should be like this. It's, and this is why this fast is beautiful. This fast is for us to humble ourselves, to attempt to be like St. Mary as much as possible, to deepen our relationship with her so that we can deepen our relationship with Christ. She's a tool. We don't preach her from the very beginning. We don't preach her in the middle. We preach her at the end, after we understand what is going on in the church, after we understand our salvation. Then we speak to her and we say, St. Mary, help us, bless us. Hail to you, we ask you, O saint, full of glory. And we, in the midnight hours, we pray, in the midnight prayer, we ask her to save the world. Save the world from everything. You know, fight for our kings and our leaders. You know, we're asking her for what you would ask an army for. You were asking her to do it all by herself. And to, and to give us and to help us with our spiritual lives. Uh, so these are the few words that I wanted to share about St. Mary today. I, I'm wishing you all a blessed and holy fast. I, I thank God for this fast because I don't have to tell anyone to fast this fast. <laughs> Everybody fasts it willingly and some of you might have started a week ago and some of you might be doing it. Mike Teta, God rest her soul, started. I would laugh at her. I said, Teta, what are you doing? She, would, she didn't end uh, the fast after the Siyama Rosu. She would just say, I'm going to start St. Mary's fast from J July 12th. She just said, I'm going to just continue. And then when she gets to St. Mary's Fast, it's like maya wamet, uh, water and salt, which uh, someone can teach me what this means. I don't know. Uh, nothing fried. Well, this is good. This is healthy. What, what about butter? Is butter okay? No. No? Uh, yeah, so this is... This is um, this is a, a, a someone that we love dearly, and uh, pray and ask. Yes, Paul. Yeah, this is right. This is the the revealing of the. Is that you're asking the difference between the two, or the revealing of the assumption of the body? Yeah. Yeah, and, and by the way, this is another deep mystery. Okay, the fact that they saw that her body wasn't there led the many to say, well, if her body is not here, where is it? And then many of us might be confused about when somebody departs where they go, heaven, paradise, 
what happened. The father said that she went to heaven. Well, how could she go to heaven if there hasn't been the judgment? And uh, this, is, this is where people start to argue about where St. Mary is. I would give you my opinion, but I might get kicked out of the church. <laughs> the Immaculate Conception makes a very big argument even in our church. I spoke to a priest in our church that believes in the Immaculate Conception, no, which, yeah. which we, we refuse to So to yeah, the, 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 the also the Immaculate Conception, it, it's this mystery, it's this idea. It came from Augustine, St. Augustine, and the, it kind of started with him, and then the Catholic Church, it kept going. It's this idea of how um, physical relations between a husband and a wife is, um, is what perpetuates the, the sin of Adam. Uh, now I'm not an expert in this. I, I don't know it exactly. I haven't really studied it. But from what I read, this is where uh, they, they say, well, he couldn't have come from something that was sinful. But if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, he's got prostitutes in it. He's got murderers in it. Um, he's got, uh, uh, yeah, he's got, he's got multiple prostitutes. I mean, it's like Rahab and Tamar. Even Ruth, Ruth is a, she's a bit of a scandalous character. She, but uh, these are, and, and, and then not to mention David. David wasn't perfect, even though he was, there was, so, so it just doesn't make sense. And so, we say in the liturgy, there is no one born human being without a sin. Right. She's and, a born human being. But, but we do say about her that she, and, and this is, you know, again, you don't have to accept this. This is a dogma. The only thing that's really um, dogma is about her virginity and that she is the mother of God and she gave birth to, to Jesus Christ. But we do say that she didn't choose to sin because we all have a choice. We all can choose to sin or not sin. And she chose not to sin. And, and there's another layer to that, that John the Baptist uh, also was a, of that person that chose not to sin. Now, we don't have to discuss this here. And this is where some people might say, oh, how can you say this? How do you know? We, but in our tradition, we never accuse anybody of sin. Even, even Jacob, who deceived his, his, his father, and, and Abraham, who lied about his wife. We never, in, 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 we never accuse these individuals of being anything other than the holy fathers of the Old Testament. So you, you have to understand, we don't judge even the saints. We don't judge them, even if it says in the paper that they lied to I don't know what was going on through their head. I'm not the one to judge them, and I'm not going to say that this guy's a liar and that therefore it's okay to open up. I stay away from that. But so this is this is again another layer, but also stuff that is is we talk inside. We don't we don't share this with the world and we don't speak about this with others. We just we talk about it and it helps us in our meditations. It encourages us. Well, if she chose not to sin, I can choose not to sin. Any other questions? Okay. Okay, God willing, the rest of this fast will pass. Um, I'll let you have more time. Right? I won't have any classes unless something big comes up. Uh, but I think around Nairuz, I'm going to start up again uh, with uh, another few week um, uh, class or discussion about um, an issue at that time. Uh, hopefully we'll have a new verse of the year. The last year is that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, but because of, uh, if you caught my sense from today's um, homily about evangelism, I think in the next year I'm going to uh, push about, about this issue uh, and how we must preach the gospel to others.
All right, let us stand up for prayer and then we can depart in peace. Make us, O Lord, worthy to pray through the intercessions of the Mother of God, of St. John Chrysostom, and say, Our Father who art in heaven. Depart in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all.